Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So, guest, who are you? My name is Elizabeth Gore Will. Guilty. <laughs> Elizabeth, Elizabeth Gore, Gore, comma, Will. Yes, comma. Not Elizabeth Gore Will or Gore hyphen Will. Not Elizabeth Gore Will Guilty. <laughs> it's just Elizabeth Gore, comma, Will Guilty. Broadcaster, journalist, law graduate, um, creative entrepreneur. How's that? Creative entrepreneur, mm. I like. What does that mean? I don't mean? know. I love I it. I heard someone say that about themselves. I'm into it. And I thought, yes, that probably, because it's show business, right? And we right. are all so focused on the show, we kind of kid ourselves that the business isn't as important, but it is once you're into family know, creation. So show, show and business basically feel like they're from very two different sides of the world, right? They could never be together in a way, right? Whereas like creative entrepreneur, I mean, that to me is much better than content creator, I don't right? like content creator because that's a no. bit empty. Content feels like you're just filling the space, doesn't it? Content is the the, inside. The word itself. We used to be in the entertainment industry and now we're just all about, yeah, content. Mm. Yeah. In fact, you and I I are content right at this moment. We are. No, we're not. We're creative entrepreneurs. entrepreneurs. Correct. (laughs) But I'm content with that. You know, if you put the emphasis on the second syllable, I am content mostly with my creative choices. Uh huh. But I feel probably more, slightly more on the make by saying I'm a creative entrepreneur because that means that you mine your resources in order to make a living rather than just being a creative, which sounds slightly more pure. Yeah, what's the point of that though? Isn't that just a lie that capitalism and like business and people who didn't want to hear our pesky ideas sold to us that creatives should be poor and not have any power in the community? Well, exactly, or what they used to do in ancient Rome and creatives were there to stoop the mentors and paint them pictures as they went along. I don't know. Right. You know. Like we're not your, we're not your pets. Like we make valuable contributions to business and the economy. Like we don't need to be patronized and we don't need to be told that we're not pure artists if we try to actually make a living out of the thing that we're good at. Like it's such a ridiculous parameter. It like imagine if we said that about professional like sports people. They're like, yeah, I mean, you're good at basketball, but I hate the way you've commercialised it by being the best player in the NBA. Well, like it doesn't make any sense. It's true. And I heard you once talking in an interview and you'll tell me what it was about, but you were talking about about the number of people that were either in your employ or who the jobs that you had created within your creative world. And it actually resonated with, with me at the time. Because whilst I do the same thing, I hadn't thought about myself in that way. But then I thought, actually, it's true. At times, I utilise a social media person. I utilise, I do have a personal assistant who organises bookings. I have this, I have that. And people come in and out of my life in order to perform certain services so that I can continue to be creative. But it is it is a business. And once you can get your head around the fact that it's a business, you might have a chance of surviving. Maybe. Everybody else is thinking of it as a business. That's right. Like I don't know why we're not. Why is that? It's a trap for the person who is at the heart of the business to be, well, traditionally it was because so everybody else could take advantage of the person who's at Mm. the heart of the business. Like 
This is the every time that people complain about the arts, I just think the amount of people I know, like, you know, and I'm talking from young comedians starting out on their path, putting on their first show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival through to, you know, established art, artists who are part of the cultural conversation, you know, Hannah Gasby, Tim Minchin, people like this who are amongst our, you know, most creative and interesting thinkers, you know, on any level from any occupation. Like, but that first person starting out, you know, doing their first Melbourne Comedy Festival, they still have to hire a room and there has to be a tech for the show and they have to get some posters printed and then people come to the show and people park in the city and they go to a restaurant. This is what the arts are for, by the way. They keep your city going. That's why they have arts events is because people who go to a show don't just exist in a vacuum where they are at that show. The show is in a bar that serves alcohol, so they buy a drink. They go to a restaurant that is nearby and so they support that restaurant. They park in the city. Some money goes into the local car. Like this is the nature of what they – and you know what they did? They pulled something out of their imagination. They didn't go to some land that used to belong to Indigenous people and dig it all up and take all the valuable shit out and give none of the money to the Indigenous people and keep all the money for themselves while pumping that money into the atmosphere and destroying the planet that we fucking live on for super profits. They just pulled an idea out of their head and made that business for all those people. Like, we should never be... Like, we should always remember that. Like, even at that level, it's a business. That doesn't make you, like, a, the negative connotation of that, in my opinion. That's to me, is pure poetry. That your imagination created all that momentum for people to live and to laugh and to enjoy themselves and come together and, and do other things, like actually live life out of your head. Well done. Congratulations. Never feel bad about like that being the thing you do with your life. And then in comes Colonel Tom Parker with his uppers and his downers <laughs> and he makes you have a really good time all the while while fucking you up the ass as you're leaning across the desk. And thus is the life of an artist. So it's I'm grateful to be an artist. I'm grateful that occasionally uh, people are interested in my ideas and my point of view, but I have learnt to ask myself over the 30 years or so that I've been doing this, um, is it worth the investment? Uh, That's what I've learnt to do that because sometimes you're just so grateful or you're and, uh, you know, sometimes you really want to do something mm -hmm. and that's your passion project and so you really want to do something and you're prepared to go for the ride. But then other times you have to ask yourself, does it equate in terms of my life and value for money with my life? That's where I'm at. Uh, that's, I mean, that's a very interesting place for this conversation to start, I think. So, Haven't we started? How, well, I mean, we, <laughs> but you we, know, we've always started. From the minute we start talking, we've started. We've started. But now I feel like we're commencing official proceedings. Okay. I just had an old man rant about the arts for a second. You, but it was, got that out of it the was way. <laughs> and, uh, and then now we're just a couple of creative entrepreneurs sitting down you for like, a chat uh, about you like life. That phrase. And I love it. I'm I'm totally into it. I think it was a good strong start. Well. Like, you know. Um, so but it, it also is a good prism through which to gauge what you just told me, which is this idea of you're balancing the entrepreneur angle with you. I am going to have to invest my time, my resources, my creativity. My life. There is going to be an opportunity cost mm. to that, to my, you know, whatever it is that I could be doing with that time and that energy. Mm -hmm. um, you, you asked cheekily off air why um, 
Uh, it had taken me 10 years to get you on the podcast. Mm, I did. <laughs> In fact, Sorry. I asked Mike, your producer, did someone pull out? Because I, I often you... don't feel part of the yeah. uh, gang because I am different and because I have done things uh, my own way. And as a woman in the entertainment industry, I'm one of the few that there are three of us that four of us of, of my age and ilk, although I'm probably the youngest of that four, but Jean Kitts and Wendy Harmer, Denise Scott and myself, although I haven't had a traditional stand-up like um, I'm more like Wendy and Jean than I am Denise, but actually managing to carve a life with a picket fence and children and all of those sorts of things as well is rare for Gen X. I'm a Gen X, but they're more baby boomer, but it was rare for us. You know, like Mary Hardy died in a bath by her own hand through loneliness. Everybody loved her. And she was so popular and famous on the penthouse club and everything. But often the female who threw herself into the public eye, th particularly through comedy, was very lonely. And, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't like with you, Will, with people lining up to have their way with you after a gig. Blokes would be frightened if, if, if you were, <laughs> I mean, I'm talking through a heteronormative, heteronormative lens. But it's different for the female who chooses to okay, go into a this. few a few guys lined up. But you know what I mean. Like, took, didn't a few guys still lined up. To me and took their I'm shot sure a couple do. of times I'm as sure well. I wasn't was, meaning it through I a was always flattered to I me. just <laughs> meant through being attracted to you. You know, like a woman no, on stage I know, I, speaking yes. is not necessarily an attractive, wasn't an attractive proposition. Yes. Wasn't well, I want, to, I want to unpack all that. Like, But I, I want to tell you firstly. Why the you didn't ask real, me? The real answer to your joking question. It wasn't a joke, so, actually. So you you said off air, well, I'm going to take it as a joke because I'm going to about to say something lovely okay. about you and then Thank you'll you. feel bad okay. that you leaned in so hard. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I um, used to do this uh, podcast in person only. Uh, that was one of the many things that the pandemic changed. And uh, I had several times over the years thought about having you on the show, just never had been in the same place at the same time. And I, that was my one rule. And then the pandemic changed everything. Um, I decided to, that I could start doing the show uh, when it came to, you know, having people in different places. But then I actually stopped doing this show for 14 months. Um, the conversations I was having with people with the state my life was in and uh, my mental health and just, you know, everything else, coping with post-COVID as we all were or living still in COVID. And um, I couldn't have these conversations anymore with someone who had a traumatic story to tell or like, you know, I would have the emotional baggage carried around with me. And so I decided if the show was going to come back that I was just going to talk to people that I was super interested in talking to and I knew that the conversation would go really well. So it's been a bunch of new comedians. I've been like looking for guests who are like people I hadn't spoken to that I've always wanted to speak to and you are one of those oh, people. So really? the reason that you are here is because I have a me. new yeah, I have a new attitude to this show and I thought we would have a very lovely chat and it's already been got off to a quite a good start, I think. I like so it. yeah. So let's talk about we what you were talking about, which was it was very different times because you you are. I always tell people about my comedy career that I ran away to join the circus, but the circus already like was starting to become a business at that stage. You were slightly before me, mm -hmm. not not long before me, know, but slightly before, before me. And but in like like you said, in that little in between transitiony sort of world from the original sort of pioneers, but still very much pioneering and Keating still Howard. Yeah, 
So um, this is when I obviously first discover you as well as a fan. First, it must have been, I, I don't even know what the first thing I would have seen you. It would have been an ABC TV show. It might have been Live and it Sweaty live and possibly. Sweaty. And um, yeah, just, I mean, I've, I've said this before. Um, yeah, Wendy has been on this podcast and, you know, I've said it of Wendy, which is that I just think she was massively um, – uh, badly treated by the Australian entertainment industry in general in that she demonstrated how good she was at hosting live TV, hosting the big gig. I mean, that I know now, having hosted a whole bunch of things in my life, just how difficult hosting a live show like that would have been with all those acts and all that Ted Robinson explosions and energy and different stages and different styles of comedy. The fact that she was able to do that at that time as a female on TV you know, looking the way she did, and I mean that in the way that we all understand that to mean, like it was not typical of the times to give someone that position. Like the fact that she nailed it so well and then never really got the opportunity to do it again is a fucking disgrace. And like I think there are parallels in a way with how you were treated with in, in your hosting roles it, because for a while like you just proved that you were unstoppable as like a creative TV force and then there was a fucking couple of hiccups and it didn't feel like every, anyone was in a good mood to give you a second chance again. Now, is that, is that could be completely fucking wrong and off base and or just a very simplified version of something that's much more complicated than that. But let's just use it as a starting point to jump into it and okay. see what you think. Okay. So let's just start with Wendy. Wendy is amazing and Wendy Harmer – uh, when she hosted the big gig, it was an ensemble, and 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 I and in fact, Live and Sweaty was also an ensemble. So hosting an ensemble is very different too, as you know. When everybody's got their role to play and you're supported, and mm -hmm. if you don't like this bit, well, then this other bit comes on real quick, and all of that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So we were both very fortunate in that we were championed by the wonderful Ted Robinson and the late Pam Swain, and this gang. And we were also lucky in that it was Wendy, the big gig would have been 87, so it's sort of Bob Hawkish uh, at the time of Australia. So I always say that you can, you used to be able to, when we were broadcasting, tell your Tonight Show hosts and the, the temperature of our Tonight Show hosts from who was the Prime Minister. So, mm -hmm. you know, the big gig was very hawky, you know, it was very hawky. Mm -hmm. And, um, and when McFeast came along, we were on the back end. So that was 1991 when Live and Sweaty started. And that was Keating and that was, you know, recalcitrance era. So we were fortunate in those sorts of things. And Wendy did get a Tonight Show after that that never went anywhere called In Harmer's Way. Oh, uh, yeah. And then she did the debates with Andrew. So, mm. so she carved a path at a time when it was pretty hard to carve a path. And then, of course, she did breakfast radio on um, oh, one of the FM. most successful radio performers like in Australian exactly. history. So, and, I mean, this is my point though. Like she was clearly, gr I mean, I still think you know, even with that evidence, like, you know, someone who like is with her, the, her level of talent, oh, of course, someone that just should have been on everything. Of course. But the thing is neither, neither Wendy or I were beautiful. So, it's interesting because not only were we loudmouth women, and I talk about us mm. together at the same time when maybe I shouldn't, but we weren't traditionally beautiful. I think for the purposes of this we can, yep. right? 
So let me just read you something. I sent it to Wendy just not long ago. She won't mind Um, because it was about me. But it was, uh, we were unpacking boxes. So I lived in Sydney for 20 years and I, and Sydney was the place whereby you could, in Melbourne, I always, my theory was, Will, that you had to be a character. So that's why Magda and um, Marg and all the, the working doggy girls, the, the degeneration girls, actually not working dog. But if you were a character, you could have your voice through a character because it wasn't really you, right? Mm-hmm. So you could be, yeah. you know, a character. Kali Mole. You could have your social comment through a character that was through Comedy Company. But in Sydney, you're allowed to be slightly more brazen, even though I had a character, Elle McFeast. It was me turbocharged. Wendy was allowed to be Wendy. In Sydney, it was a much less sophisticated character-based comedy. You could actually, as a woman, speak. But the fact that we weren't beautiful did influence a lot of what our career was and how we fit in that career. So here's a, a letter that I got, just, I sent it to Wendy because, you know, she once asked me, we were talking about looks, right? And for some reason, because I had a fabulous cleavage, a very small waist and high cheekbones and big lips, other women and men thought that I had it easy in terms of looks. But here's a fan letter, and I didn't prepare this earlier, I honestly sent this to Wendy the other day. It says, Dear Miss McFeast, I'm writing to tell you how much I hate you and your show. I was a big fan of the original Live and Sweaty when Andrew Denton was the host and you only did the reports from Melbourne. He had a great sense of humour and his brilliant ad-libbing was very enjoyable viewing. Okay, well, that's about his talent. Mm. But now, So that's about his talent. Yeah, that's fine. But now we have to watch a fat, ugly wog trying to be funny and whose only knowledge of sport is Australian rules football. Uh, Watching Andrew racing up the street and cornering his victims, immediately achieving an entertaining interaction with them, now we get to see you waddle your huge ass up the street. Then when you've collared someone, you just stand there looking stupid. And on it goes. So not only did we have to carve our path in terms of being brave, in terms of what we said. I can see Mm. your face. Can you see my face? Mm -hmm. Um, We had to also be conscious of what we looked like. And there were women reporters. I remember one woman in particular, she knows that I know we've talked about it and we've never Mm. kind of straddled it, got over it, because I haven't got over Mm -hmm. it. She was writing about me and she said, she's no oil painting, but. And I... At the time, I must have just become incredibly inured to it and just become mm-hmm. tough and maybe even over-spice-girled myself to say it doesn't matter that I'm not conventionally pretty, I'm still attractive. But definitely those sorts of things had an impact in terms of our confidence and the sorts of things that chipped away at our mojo and our ability to keep going. We were only allowed to keep going because there were good men who were our patrons. And when they were out of favour, we were out of favour. So once John Howard took over as Prime Minister, who was the dominant Tonight Show host commercially? It was Rove. Say hi to your mum for me. And, and there weren't rude, brazen girls around because Corinne was gorgeous, but she wasn't rude and brazen. She was a much sweeter, smart, but not rude and brazen like Wendy and I. So I don't know whether that's quite answered your question, 
and the diff- the other difference between. I mean, I, I, you know what? It, <laughs> it doesn't matter because the questions are really there just to just prompts, right? get you talking. That's right. But um, there were all those but, other but things. But I love this theory about that the talk shows of the times yeah. reflect the government of the times. This is I'd never thought about it before. Well, but what a fun, well, what a fun idea that during is. During Keating, you had HG and Roy, and you mm. had McFeast on the ABC. You know, recalcitrance. <sighs> And so you talk about that idea of being like a recalcitrant or being a bit, you know, prickly or spiky or whatever it might be. Like, you know, opinionated, I guess. Well, we is just what existed. Like, so that was enough to be opinionated. Right. Yeah. Well, having an opinion made you opinionated yes, in a way that having an opinion wouldn't have made – like, I have plenty of opinions. I know there are some people who think I'm opinionated, but like um, – <clears throat> but I but I know that there is a, a difference in between the two. But – but also, that is fun, right? That's part of being comedic. It's it's why you're saying you preferred being in Sydney than you did being in Melbourne because, like, there was an opportunity to be, even though it was a character, the character was more a brazen extinction of yourself mm. rather than you and having to hide who reality. you were. it interacted with reality. It interacted with reality, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a bigger version. Yeah. In the, in the same way as the person who is me on stage isn't me. Like, it's an exacerbation. Me, yeah, when somebody like comes and sees my show and then says to me, oh, we should catch up. I think we've got a lot of ideas in common. I'd be like, you would be bored by me. <laughs> like they're all my best ideas said very quickly yeah. in a row. Like the rest of the time I am full of crap and nonsense. Um, so it weighed on you obviously at least in a way that you were aware of it. And so I don't know, is that – is that something that, like, when you look at today, do you feel that things are, are better? Like, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, it's not obviously, like, I can't walk in your shoes to have this perspective and understand exactly what this is like and, you know, how much it's felt and, you know, how much it affects you. And, and, and but, but I recognize it to be true. So I was, I guess, can you share more of, do you think things have got better? Like, are they, are they getting better? Are we, or is it, you know, have we, has it changed? I think, like, it, I think it, I mean, look, there are always going to be people, there are tribes of people. And in the last 18 months or so, I have discovered a tribe that I feel very comfortable being in. So the deals that I've made with myself will have been deals like I wanted to partner up and I wanted to have a family and I mm-hmm. wanted to be part of my children's lives in the best way that I possibly could. So um, so I made decisions to work in particular ways that serviced that. See, I got way off track because I realised from McFeast that being famous and being you know, having adulation from millions of people I didn't know was nothing in comparison with actually having a handful of people that knew my real name and actually genuinely liked and being around me. So I... I mean, that's an incredible lesson to learn. It was like, the lesson. Because, because for some people that's a lesson never learned. And maybe for some people it's a lesson they don't need to learn. Judy maybe Garland, for some people, you know. right? <laughs> but, but yes. But, but for me... Uh, it was funny. I was just doing this writing writers festival in Belgium on the weekend, and the moderator of my session said, um, commented about the fact that you know, obviously, stand up went away during COVID, and she talked about you know, how did you cope about the audience without the audience adulation? I think was the way she put it. And I said, you know, the lovely thing to learn about myself 
even though I suspected it and never tested it, which was that that wasn't the bit of it that I missed. Like, you know, I came to terms with the fact that if that was the reason you were doing it or if that's that was the pact you were entering into, that was a game you could never win. Like, like why spend the best of you on strangers? Like, you know, it's the, the wrong way, right, it's, to look at it things. It is the wrong way to look at things. And I read a book called The Late Shift, CBS, which was the story of uh-huh. David Letterman. Have you read it? Great book. Yeah, great yeah. book, right? They made it into a TV series, oh, documentary series as well, yeah. Oh, I have to. And there's a, I think there's a fictionalised version and a documentary version. Oh, you must version. In the fictionalised version, like David Letterman, the guy who plays him, has like red hair. It's very distracting. Oh. <laughs> How interesting. Well, I read that. I think I just started hosting Live and Sweaty. Maybe it was the second mm. one and it was basically about you know, how the only time he was happy was the one hour that he was on air. And it was a really bad set of timing once I'd finally got my Tonight yeah. Show to realise that I didn't want that to be me. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, like I just got where I wanted to be. And then I read this book that said, you don't want to be that invested in this. You Not totally. You need to have a life. And so um, I made it my, my thing to invest in the, the boring, beautiful, joyous, everyday part of my life, which is you know, partner that I've had for 25 years and I've got two children now and we live back in Melbourne because it's not far from my parents. Why would you have children and not, if you can, and be in the same city and not live near them and have everybody? I like it. I genuinely like it. And um, and I like having friends that know my real name and don't. and I don't mind if occasionally if someone calls me Elle, but I like the sincerity and the authenticity of it well before Brene Brown came along, you know. So that has informed my choices since McFeast. McFeast, with the Chopper Reed incident, which was 25 years ago, did lead me to be cancelled within the ABC. So I mean, it's that was, it is, Wendy never it, fucked it, up as bad as that. That was no, <laughs> that was no. a monumental well, fuck up. But okay, so when you look back on that, I mean, famous now in Australian television history. Um, and look, I mean, I'm sure for you, like you can't probably like. And like anyway, it is it's iconic and it will always be iconic. It's, like that is one thing comfort you can take out very of it. It's exciting. Is, in the history of Australian broadcasting, when they make a little package about Australian broadcasting, that's always going to be in it, right? Yep. There's going to be like Normie Rowe and Ron Casey having a Except fight on the midday show. they won't have any footage because I control the footage, <laughs> so it won't be there, but they can talk about it. <laughs> they can talk about yeah. it, okay. But like what's – like you, you say that was a fuck up. Like, but for people probably don't even remember it. I reckon most. I people. know. Like you know, that was like, a huge uh, moment of realization for me. In that I carried it for ten years, and was sort of creatively paralysed for ten years with it. It's not just because of the interview. It wasn't the interview. It was the industry response to the interview, because I thought all of that was real. I thought all the people were real, the relationships oh, were real. Man. You know, like I, I believed it. I'd bought into it, and so to just yeah, they make, but they make you buy into it. They make you think like it's real. This is, I think, the greatest gift the internet ever gave us was the idea that oh no no, like everyone's got a dumb opinion about everything. Like none of the dumb opinions actually matter. Like, and you know, like you you but you of course you get lost in all those voices and all that feedback and and what you think is meant to be the case but also because there was gatekeepers around entertainment like 
they were able to come to a consensus. If there'd been social media mm. in the way at the time, you probably would have had a whole bunch of people giving their opinions, like in the oh, contrary, thank goodness, and support. God, would you ever survive a social media pylon like that? I, know, I mean, so. but that would have been big. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm look, so glad we're old. <laughs> there is, look, yeah, there's a, but I mean, again, you, did you carry it yourself? Because why? Because it's not your fault. None of it was fucking your fault. Like, it's I not know, your fault. But I, I, Kind of. For people who don't remember, Chopper Reed was a guest on your show and he got real drunk, right? And then went on air. And the yeah, the, the interview just went awry. No, right? the interview That's was – no, I mean, no, 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 no. The interview was excellent. But the um, the response to the interview right. went, yeah. went bad. Because he was drunk. Because he was drunk. And also I yeah. guess because, you know – it was John Howard's Australia and yeah. it was and too he was far and it was too he far. He was a criminal on the – And he was Despite drunk. the fact that Eric Banner would go on to like, you know, become a well, worldwide Hollywood actor playing Well, it really derailed that movie. You know, like there was a whole ripple effect with yeah. that. But um, it was, you know, what we do is test the boundaries and for the Murdoch press and the Australia that we were in at the moment, that was too far. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, well – you know what it did? It, it, like, I mean, this is the truth. And like, it wasn't of, managed. A lot of these you things. Know, it wasn't managed. So, they, the ABC in particular, and, you know, look, they've been my employer a whole bunch of times, but it means I know the best and worst of them, which is that they often, particularly during conservative times, are scared because they're government funded. They are scared of offending the government too much. And what happens is, that it's not necessarily the initial thing that is offensive, right? It's the fact that the Murdoch press likes any opportunity to get into a culture war with the ABC. And anytime yourself or The Chaser or myself or John Safran or whoever the fuck it might yeah, be exactly. over the years yeah, yeah, yeah. gives them a target that they can attack the ABC through, yeah. then they take that. Regardless of whether it contravenes any uh, article they'll have on the next day about freedom of speech in some other context or any, you know, hypocrisy or compromise or any of those things, it's a game to them. They're a massive media organization that. As young people, in a culture war. When you're in it, right. you don't understand it's a game. No, you, just feel, you don't. You know, injured. And I'm not sure the ABC understands it's a game. I think the ABC, like, there was a period of time where they were. Like it was like they were trying to impress editorials in the Australian. You know, they they kept doing the thing the editorial in the Australian said the ABC should do, and you're like, they'll just change the parameters. The Australian, they're not in this game to play fair. You can't play fair against somebody who isn't playing fair in the first place. If you just accede to this first demand, they'll just you're negotiating with terrorists. You can't do it, right? But I think news knows what it's doing. Like they. That's why they're so good at it because they can just be disingenuous about their intentions and just prosecute this because at the very least for them, it, you know, it, it sells newspapers. Like they know what they're doing. Mm. They're trying to sell newspapers mm -hmm. and, and you know, it's very best it eliminates the potential for one of their competitors to be in the market, you know, against them and refuting them and, you know, having a balance of them. So. Like it's a game to them and the ABC's got to realise that sometimes they're being gamed and like Played. be stronger, right? It's interesting because were it not for the ABC and for people like Ted Robinson, you know, maybe we'll, neither of us would have got our crack. You know, we wouldn't have got a, we wouldn't have got a shot. And that's why it's such an important place. So my new gig is with Disrupt Radio. We launch on the 26th of June. Have you heard about it? 
So, what? well, tell me, I have heard a little bit about it, yes, but I, I imagine a lot of people in the audience listening to this are hearing about it for the first time. Have so I jumped ahead us a, too much? No, no, this is good. It's very interesting, though. It's really interesting because I've also been in and out of the ABC four times or so. And each time I have been given an opportunity that that has been unique, I would not have got in a commercial world. I have turned down a couple of commercial gigs in radio and one in Triple J. That was interesting. But anyway, that doesn't matter. And so this Disrupt Radio gig is new and different in that it's digital radio and it's going up the eastern seaboard of Australia, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, on digital, no analogue, no FM, and also on the internet. And the guy, Steve Kite, who came and got me to to be part of Disrupt, and I'll do breakfast, right? So Steve came and got me and asked me if I would be interested and he was my manager at ABC Radio Melbourne during the bushfires. But interestingly enough, when I was filling in for someone, And the reason why I'm telling this story is it's, even though we talk about the ABC as like this big homogenous being, there are, it's about the individuals that make it up the whole, that are the ones that flavour it. And Steve was one of those ones. Ted Robinson in our day was one of those ones who was in and out and created opportunities for people who weren't traditional, people who were disruptors or people who were non-conventional or edgy or whatever we were. Um, Steve's the same kind of guy. So they wanted to send me home during the bushfires when I was filling in because they said, oh, now's not the time for jokes. And I walked into his office like Private Benjamin and I said, I can actually do this, send me to Whittlesea. And he said, now's not the time for jokes. I said, I'm more than jokes. And he said, why do you think they'll talk to you when they won't talk to other people? He was from England, right? He didn't know. And I said, because they know my face. I've been on television. They know my face. And he was brave enough to send me out of all of that terrible tragedy and misfortune, I eked an opportunity, which I am very conscious of, that it was a disaster that gave me an opportunity to reinvent myself. And it also happened at the ABC because there was a brave, bold person who could see a creative and the total of the creative. So when we talk about the ABC, there are people in there that did great things, people like Michael Shrimpton who did Countdown. I'm talking about forever ago, right? But Ted Robinson, who did your show, The Glass House, and who did The Big Gig, and who did Live and Sweaty. And, you know, like there are people who have populated that place that have done great things. And that's what we have to keep encouraging in radio and television, people within the organisation who are brave and bold enough to commission great things. Because otherwise, none of us would have got our go. Working Dog wouldn't have got their go. That's what I agree. So, like, I mean, and this is, again, it, it, it almost goes back to the original like conversation we were having about the person who puts on the show, yeah. right? Is this idea that I think the ABC much needs to be much prouder of the enormous cultural contribution it makes to Australia. I think that most people understand that. Like, you know, and this is, it's almost like sometimes I'm just like, ABC, own it. You know, own what you are, lean into what you are. Don't be like told that, you know, you, you're not like don't listen to contributing. News. Don't listen right? to You news. don't need to. You just don't need to listen to Don't them. listen. Just run Because you're your beautiful own race. and you're wonderful you're and you thing. do great things. Yeah. Champion that. Celebrate that. Don't be ashamed of that. It's great. As you said. I mean, it is. It's anyway. a wonderful, it's a wonderful place.
So breakfast show, yeah. like – so going out on digital radio. Yeah. So how is it going to be different to what people can get, I guess, on their regular oh, radio shows? So like, different. Yeah, because cause it has to be, right? Like because otherwise there's no per- point somebody going to a place where – it's harder for them to do or at least takes them at least a little bit more to find it or like whatever else it is. There has to be a real compelling reason for them to go there to get something that they, they can't currently get in the easy place that they already have set up. So what is the compelling pitch to these people that they're going to find if they come and try and find you? Well, I imagine in bite-sized chunks because there are ads, which I find delightful, it's honest. Have you ever worked with ads before? Have you ever thrown like I have you I ever have done Fox. a show? When that... I started at Fox, there okay. were ads. Yeah. Yeah. No, it doesn't bother me. I think ads are honest. You know, like there are people working yeah. for a living and they're advertising their wares, and that's it doesn't influence the news. We only have one minute news bulletins. So, you know, we're not tuning in for news. We're tuning in for progressive talk, Will. And so if something uh, like you and I having this conversation could actually make it to air, um, something like our conversation would make it to air. So it's kind of um, progressive talk. It's like a commercial RN with uh, with music and songs and ads and vibrancy and um, everything is seen through a lens of having a crack for my breakfast show, mindset, carving your own path, having a crack, getting up in the morning and making your own way. It's not doom and gloom. It's not I'm waiting to be I'm waiting for my retirement. If you want to get up and get going and listen to my Get Shit Done Breakfast show, then uh, then come and find me. It'll be fun. Okay. So that's interesting to me. So you suddenly have this… Lens. I don't know. Lens. Oh, yeah, lens is good. I like that. That's fun. Um, so you have this lens through which you, uh, you're going to be able to talk to people. Now, you've obviously done, like you said, a whole bunch of broadcasting, whether it be television or radio over the years. And so you've understood that, you know, different roles, like Al McFeast hosting McFeast is different to Libby Gore hosting like ABC Radio, mm. you know, or going out in a bushfire. Mm-hmm. They're different aspects of the same person, one a heightened reality of one, one leaning into another skill set of another. Is this... Are we going to see the full Libby on this show? Is this what an opportunity like this is? That because you, how many hours a day are you on air for? Like, two, what's your seven till nine? Two is breakfast because it's a lot, right? You have to. That's the thing they always say about breakfast radio is that it reveals a lot of you, regardless of whether you think it does or not. And if if it's in this more progressive space, do you feel like? Is there anything that you're worried about? revealing about yourself that you feel like you're going to have to, you know. I'm like not worried doing... about it. I think, no. you know, for ABC audiences who used to love the weekends that I used to do, which were a slightly more leisurely pace, however, I always put energy into them and my Sunday show was about, for want of a better wanky word, empowerment in the health space. Yeah. So I think you and I did a talk, we did a talk about your hip and about therapies mm-hmm. for that. Um, it, I've always been good at creating th- themed programs and putting information through a lens. So that Sunday one was health and wellness for the flawed and optimistic. And it was a kale-free zone for people who um, still wear lycra, even though they shouldn't. So Mm -hmm. that was good. And the Saturday one was more sort of businessy. And in a way, I think it's taking the best of both of those worlds that I was interested in, because I think, and you would get this just from 
your background before comedy as a journalist, I think was actually business is what you did. If you can't support yourself, if you don't have choices, you're never going to find happiness. And part of choices is financial security. Part of choices is being able to find your way around, um, is being able to support yourself and know that you can actually get bread on the table, have somewhere to live, do something for yourself and not be ground down by the system. So I, the only thing that people will discover about me more than what they already know is that I'm a pragmatist in that respect. Ah, like I am actually a pragmatist. Because I don't think there's any point dying in a garish. No, there's, I mean, there's not a lot of point in it. So uh, tell me about this pragmatism, though. Is this something that has always been part of your personality? Like, where did it come from? I'm a pragmatist. Is it a, I am, um, yeah. Ultimately, I'm a stoic, you know, like I'm a pragmatist. Right. You know, there's someone and when you say a my... stoic, do you – oh. oh. Where's that coming uh, from, uh, that leaky? My... This is a good opportunity, seeing that we um, had to have a little technical break. Yep. There was, you were hearing voices in your head. I know, and I just thought, <laughs> have I not taken my tablets or what? <laughs> Turns out somebody had the intercom button down, so you were indeed hearing voices yes, in I your was. head. So uh, we had a little pause. I had a little bathroom break, and we're back. And this is actually a good opportunity. Um, for me to ask you the central conceit of this podcast, which is I ask people if they have a life philosophy and we were just venturing into the world of your pragmatism and stoicism. So I thought this is a good opportunity to ask if you do indeed have like a life philosophy. Yes. Now look, Will, some people, uh, you know, go towards Socrates and others go towards Aristotle and whatever, but I actually follow the life mantra of Rocky Balboa, which basically oh, yeah. is it's not how many times you get hit, it's how many times <laughs> you get back up. I am just an ordinary girl who benefited from an extraordinary education at the tail end of, you know, Bob Hawke. I didn't pay for my law degree. And my dad was a mechanic and I grew up in the workshop after school answering the phones in my hat and glove from my private girls' school that my both my parents worked really hard to send me to. And I know the value of work and I also know the value of getting back up. And before resilience became a word that I knew, I, I had it. And then once I knew what the word was, then it gave me something to hold on to as I dragged myself back up. <laughs> Does that make sense? That, it- that makes great sense. And I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's such a heartening message like to hear because it's a very realistic one. At least I guess I share a lot of that pragmatism and I mean, I'm a dairy farmer's son right. and, uh, you know, there is an inbuilt stoic, before I knew what stoicism was, yeah. there's an inbuilt stoicism to the life of a dairy farmer, which is that the cows need milking regardless of anything else that's happening exactly. every day. And um, regardless of whatever the setback is, your life is going to be a series of, you're never going to, you're never going to nail farming. You never get to the end of a day of farming and you go, well, that's everything done. Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, exactly. Don't have to worry about farming anymore. Exactly. And, and so you do need to learn how to get back up. And it's I not am about used to fl- a world of washing the grease off your hands. Right. You know? I'm used to the Cars world. Cars need to be fixed, Cars right? Cars need like to be fixed and people need to be fixed. You don't build a car and it works perfectly all the time. You need to maintain it. You need to service it. You need to repair it. You need to... You know, sometimes get a new car. Like, I mean, they're pretty 
important lessons to learn. But I want to just concentrate quickly, if we can, on the free education because you must have been pretty much like as soon as you were out the door, they were like, fuck it, we're charging people because I certainly know that I got charged for my journalism degree, not anywhere near the ridiculous amounts people get charged now, but there was certainly, you know, like I had a, you know, a fee in the tens of thousands when I left university to pay off. And uh, uh, tell me, you know, your thoughts around obviously, I mean, because- A hex-free life. Yes, well, and and whether it's an advantage, I mean, you know, what advantage it is, whether it's an advantage, the role of education in our societies, what your personal perspective is on whether education should have a price tag attached to it mm. or not, like any of those thoughts. Give me your thoughts around education. Okay, well, I can't give you any policy thoughts on education mm. because I, I don't want policy. I need thoughts. to stay in my lane that would on bore that. People. Yeah, but yeah. I do know that education is freedom, mm. and. You know, after McFeast, when I was so beaten up, you know, emotionally and creatively and confused about where I sat and my relationships with people and, you know, like how did all of this fit together? I did some work on happiness as people do when they're low. You know how people who are slightly screwed up study psychology? So that's yeah. what I did some work on that and interviewed as many people as I could about happiness mm. and whatever. And I found out that happiness was made up of <laughs> a sense of purpose Choices, my sounding like, am I reflecting you? A sense of no, purpose. Well, I mean, literally, you're on a podcast where I ask people like well, what they think the meaning of life. Well, there is. you go. So, yeah. You know, this is all about you, Will. A sense of purpose, meaningful relationships, and choices. Okay, that's happiness. Yeah. Uh-huh. A sense of purpose, meaningful relationship, and choices. So you're asking me about. I, I'm going to hone in on choices, and I talked about money before. Yeah. But education is behind that. As well, right. so gives you gives you gives options. the opportunity for cho- gives you options for choices. Right. Yeah, so like mm. I went through. I finished law in nineteen eighty seven. I was lucky enough to go through with an interesting crowd, and um, you know some of them have gone before me. That as I said, um, and that's where I got involved in comedy and stuff with the law review. Uh, Tom Gleisner was producing the law review that I was confident enough to stay in. I dropped out of the year before because there were too many Catholic private school boys who made me feel fat and dumpy. But the year I stayed in, there was another fat girl who auditioned in a pink fluffy jumper who was hilarious. And I thought, if she can do it, I can do it. And that was Magda. You might've heard me tell that story, but it's the truth. So, Do you remember what the name of that review was, by the way? I just love the name of law reviews. Do you remember what the law was? Or was it called Don't Talk Backwards? One of them was, oh, one Mm, of them was called Legal AIDS. That was 1984. Oh, Legal AIDS? Yeah, it was when no one knew it was that bad. They called it Legal AIDS. Nothing to do with me. Anyway, (laughs) so I think we were screw loose. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I thought, so my free education and many thousands of other people's free education, I mean, it literally changed our lives, right? Because we were educated beyond our means, our economic means. Um. And I mean, my parents were aspirational middle class, obviously, though my mother worked and had always worked and had been an equal contributor to my father, pharmacist. So she always came home with stories of the patients um, and how the doctors never prescribed the right thing. So she'd have to ring the doctor and sort out the medications and how they interacted with each other. But I was brought up amidst uh, jokers, 
at the workshop, Wingnut, Parrot, Black Max, and stories of people's lives with my mother. And so, and the, the law degree was mine, that analytical thinking. And I think the education, as I'm saying to my kids now, it's what elevates you. So if you're lucky enough to have one and to take it seriously, you know, all power to you. Although I have done some work at Monash University in the last year working with their journalism students because they have a Sean McAuliffe-style show called The Struggle and I'm their creative mentor. And they don't have nearly as much fun at uni as we did because they have to work Mm -hmm. and support themselves and pay them back. But I'm Mm -hmm. thrilled that they say the highlight of their week is the struggle, that I can give them that joy, be part of that joy, I should say. Yeah, but I mean, even the fact that the best part of your week is something called the struggle mm. is tough <laughs> <laughs> at that point of your life, I would have thought. I know. But I, I mean, I think we lose more than we gain when we charge people so much to be educated. I just think as a society, there's got to be a better way than the way that we're doing it and the way that we are increasingly doing it. Like, you know, I'm again, I'm pragmatic, pragmatic enough to accept an imperfect system over like, you know, I'm not going to... I understand it'd be better if it was all still free, right? I wish but it I, was. But I, but I, and I do too. But I don't think that, that that's a possible first step. I don't think anyone's going to come in now and go, I'm just going to make it all free again. So can we start with making it better? Like this is, we should, let's stop going in the bad direction and start going back in the good direction. Let's not accept that it just has to get more and more expensive because that's ridiculous. But also because so much of the creativity and innovation comes from what, young people studying at university doing their extracurricular. Right. So if they don't feel yes. like they've got the opportunity to play and be bold and experiment and explore the extracurricular. How do you, why are you in the law review when you should be studying law? Because your degree is going to cost you $200,000. Exactly. So that's where, where it's that lack of peripheral vision. That lack of peripheral vision is what costs us, I think, is what you're saying as a society. And I agree with you. Right. If we think that educate, if if we broadly think that education is good for society in general, rather than just the person who enjoys the education, then I think that society needs to remember to do. It's just better for us us all to have better educated people in society in every level of society. I don't I don't make a judgment on university education over like a TAFE based skills based say. education. Like I'm. I'm just saying it's better for everyone to have better access to be better at the thing that they oh, do to be skilled. regardless of what the thing that they do Correct. is. Correct. And maybe Bob made a mistake, Hawkey made a mistake when he said, I think it was Hawkey, the clever country, you know? Mm. You know, maybe by placing that emphasis on education and white collar instead of instead of uh, giving respect and status to trades – what did I read recently? The one thing that AI can never replace is hairdressers. You know, the the touch on the head, the cut, the style, the artisan, the artisanship, and the conversation. You know, it can't be replaced, and yet we sort of pushed trades to the side in focus of everybody has to go and get an arts degree or do this or do that and shut down our TAFEs and made it really hard. Our technical schools, our technical high schools. You know, not everybody's built the same way. So I think that was a mistake to place a hierarchy on on job status. I think that was a mistake talking on the run. And I also think that we need to keep in our peripheral vision the value that comes from well-rounded human beings who don't just come out with a degree because we all got our article clerkships at great law firms, not just because of our marks, but because of the whole person of what you did. Like I ended up at Phillips Fox because of 
the law review and the the sports journalism yeah. that I'd done. You know, I was you needed to be a more rounded person. Yeah, an it was accepted person. as being part of it. Yeah. But this is again, I, yes, I think. I mean, I've got so many thoughts on this, but it's the whole point of education is to give people the opportunity to have the breathing space in between and then to have the creativity to take what they learn and then apply it to something. Whereas if you send them out into the world with these massive debts that they have to immediately start paying off, then you've limited university education in particular to just job training at that point, right? Like it's not actually worth going to a university to learn it. They should just like build it into whatever that job is that you like. And often you learn more in the first two weeks you're at the job than you do in the three years Mm. studying it. So if studying it is the whole point of it, just to learn how to do it, then there's no point in doing the studying, right? Like, like in a way, you might as well just go in and they show you how everything works in two weeks and then you just get into learning while you're on the job. Or there's got to be a more point to university education. It can't just be about the curriculum. It's got to be about the extra curricular activities, whatever they might be, because that's where the true innovation comes from. And the relationships. And the relationships. I mean, that's the other thing, Will, that I've learned over time is the power and the value of relationships. I know it can be reduced in a capitalistic sense. People would say, oh, it's not what you know or who you know, but actually it's so important to find your tribe. You know, as you lubricate your way through society and life, if you've got like-minded but different people around you, then there's always uh, support, there are opportunities, there's the opportunity to test your belief system or you know, like I just sort of feel like you need to be able to develop your tribe. So Richard Stubbs used to say that about when he went to the last laugh and he finally found his tribe when the last laugh still existed and he started as a waiter and then ended up in stand-up. But it is kind of nice fitting in. It's kind of nice belonging. Where do you feel like you most belong? I've probably – oh, in my family. I, I belong in my family. Hmm. I really love um, – I remember once the producer that I worked with told me a show that I'd made, I think it was called Portrait of a Power Pussy. And I, and I can't remember what it was about it. Firstly, the first cut of it, which I didn't do, I wasn't involved in the edit, was overly sexual. And I didn't understand why it was sexual because it was meant to be about empowerment and opportunity. So that was the first clash, but that was with producer one. And then it must have got, the second cut must have then gone the other end of the spectrum. And it was about love and falling in love and whatever. And I remember the EP said to me, oh, it's a motherhood statement. (laughs) As if it was a bad thing. As if a motherhood statement was a bad thing. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. It's a motherhood statement. must be fucked. But actually, I really love being a mother. It's my favourite thing. My favourite word is mummy. I love it. And um, it's made me as a human being. And I'm still an ambitious woman. I am an ambitious woman. It's not still. I am an ambitious woman. I am career focused and a lot of my identity is tied up with my work and I adore being a mother and I like sitting around the television with my partner. Of, I'm, I'm proud that I've got a, a relationship of 25 years. You know, like I, I see all of that as a huge achievement and probably the making of me. Uh, what is it about being a mother that, like, I mean, because it is, you, you, I mean, it being a parent. clearly is something that you – care about like i mean i'm passionate about it it is me it's real it's real so yeah so what i mean i i understand that description but what is it about it that like you know 
What does that mean? Just unpick that a little bit more for me. Um, I think, and you would know this. It was funny because I was just picking myself up and wondering whether mother is a gendered word, a woke word. But I like mother. Oh, mother, parent. Parent. Like I only said mother because you no, said No, I like mother. You, I, you, I like mother. So. And I'm, you know, work yeah. shits me. But anyway. Um, I mean, I'm like, I'm not fussed in anyone being like, I think that it was your, we're talking about you. I breastfed and, and I'm a mother. And um, I was going to say, if you're, if you're fine with it, <laughs> I'm, I'm fine, fine with it. With no, it I am fine with it. I was thinking more about you, your lens in terms of our oh, conversation. I don't, don't. I mean, I'm like, I'm talking to you about your experience. Well, I am a mother. And I was using your words. So and I breastfed. I'm going to, yeah. So, um, yeah, like about that relationship. What is it about that that you know you just think this is for me? Because I'm so I'm a, like maybe let me put it in this prism. I'm a person who does not have children of my own and uh, or of anybody else's. I should, should point out, and that was a weird way to say it. I don't have children of my own or some mm, that I'm just keeping any. hostage in the house. And no, but I have no children and. I don't think – I think the reason that I don't have children is that I just don't think I'd be a very good parent. Like it's just not ever been something – you know, I just never had the interest in it. Like I admire it in other people. I'm not anti it. I'm not one of those people who's anti-kids or like thinks that you're irresponsible if you have children or any of those sort of things, you know. Um, I just – it's just not for me. So I'm interested in when I meet someone who it definitely is for. Like, you know, clearly it is for you. What is it about it that is for you? Hmm. Okay. Well, the best way to explain it is that's consistent mm. is that I am one for intense emotional experiences. I am yeah. one for intense emotional experiences. That's why I like doing comedy. I still love getting a laugh. It's joyous. I love it. I'm also competitive. That's comedy. Having children uh, is like opening a chamber of the heart I never knew existed. And it floods in and it's an intense emotional experience and I love it. And I love um, the tenderness of it. I love the um, insecurity of it. I love it. I love seeing myself reflected in my children when they come out with something that just is like so, so me um you know, like by osmosis, neither of the kids are interested in showbiz. Both Stu and I work in media and showbiz. Neither <laughs> of them. They've got a double showbiz gene. Neither of them are interested yeah. in it. However, both of them are performers, <laughs> you know, so um, uh -huh. they are hilarious. And my daughter did a stand an impromptu stand-up routine of her and I going through customs on the way back from Bali that I was in <laughs> hysterics about because every time she talked about and then mummy said, yeah. And then mummy said, mummy, 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 mummy. <laughs> she kept calling back to mummy, 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 mummy. And it made me laugh. It was like in Peanuts. You know how the voice, the sound of the parents yeah. in Peanuts is wah, 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 wah. Well, she just hears me as mummy, 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 mummy. That was my contribution. And I was literally, I literally, thank goodness I was in the bath because I think I probably wet myself because it was just so innately clever and the sense of timing and the sense of structure was so innately clever mm. and so right. So it amuses me anthropologically having children because yeah. whilst my children haven't studied drama or arts or media or anything like that, 
They both think incisively like lawyers. They're creative like their father as well in terms of sounds and making films and they tell a good story. And I just love that. I just, I mean, apart from the fact that it's a huge responsibility, um, I don't sort of pain myself with, I'm very conscious that they're going to create the new world with the subjects that they study at school and the things that they talk about. Very definitely when you hear people on the radio say, oh, we don't know what the jobs of the future are for the children, and it's all theory. And all of a sudden, you hear Alan, I hear Alan Finkel talking about his new book about solar energy. Can't think of what it's called now. And I realise that my daughter's so good at design, and actually it is within her capability to be able to design the new grid, for instance, which wasn't designed for wind and solar. It was designed mm-hmm. for coal. And so they're having trouble... Um, absorbing all the solar energy into the yeah. grid because it wasn't built for that and it all goes to waste. And I'm thinking, actually, that's what our kids are going to be doing. That's why they're doing design. They will be designing the new grid and designing the new world that we will live in as old people. They they will be the bridge. And I don't spend a lot of time being profound like that, but occasionally I'm struck with thoughts in traffic, you know, while I'm listening to Fifi, Dave and but, Fev or whatever. The- but I dig this. Like, I mean, I absolutely dig this because this is – I mean, anyway, I I bring this up all the time. I'm so sorry. What is it? So anyway, there's this Maori uh, uh, concept called, and again, I'm always conscious that I'm saying this I haven't heard it. I haven't heard it. It's called huakapapa. Huakapapa. Like anyway, I I wish I I would know that I'm pronouncing this correctly, but um, in a very oversimplified way, it's much more complex than this, but it's about the idea that we – you know, the concept that we often think about ourselves as the evolution of humanity. Because we're the last ones who've been here, we feel like everything else has been leading up to us Mm. and that gives us some sense of being special. But the truth of it is that we are just a link in the chain. Correct. You know? And so there are people who came before us who got us to where we are and we are the people who came before the next generation. And we've always got to think about that a little bit. And what you're saying is that idea of, and it's, I hate when people get old and think that everything was better in the olden days and the young people are no good because regardless of whether you think that to be true or not, it's their future and they are going to be the ones in charge of it. And if we're all, you know, being the old people there, like oh, but we Will, need them to be... Well, they still need to listen, for fuck's sake, you know. I mean, again, this is like a theoretical... I, could, I know, but what I'm saying is, you know, like there are certain there are certain young people who don't know what they don't know and I don't care. Call me Karen, but I... Uh-huh. Well, but give me an no, insight into that. No. Like, I mean, what do you, because what do you think? Like, do you think that this next generation is like we're in good hands or do you think that the internet has destroyed their brains and they're all not going to be able to communicate with people? Like, what do you think? What do I think? Which generation yeah. are you talking about? The millennials or the Zeds or, the, or my mom? I don't know. Like the future. Like, tell me about the future. Well, firstly, are they all need okay? to harden the fuck up, right? <laughs> What's wrong with them and what's right with Hard them? Hard enough. Like, for God's really? sake, you can't go... Are they f- too soft? I don't know whether they're too soft, but I think mm. I'm with Ricky Gervais when he says that no one is actually entitled to go through this world and not be offended by something. I mean, that is true. Right? So whilst there are certain things that I'm sure we can shave the edges off, like, you know, racism and bigotry and inequality and all of those sorts yeah. of things... Shouldn't be going out of your way to offend people, I wouldn't have no, thought. No, but sometimes the offence... marginalised people. No, I'm with that. You don't punch down. Yeah. But I'm saying, yeah. like, also, by the same token, look at what the intention is, for God's sake. Yeah. Don't jump to conclusions that you've been offended. Have context. A, context. Correct. 
There is a context. Let's move on from content and have a little bit more time looking the at the context, context and <laughs> yeah. what we you know so that's that's my point with uh, that. I I am a I am firm I'm pragmatic on that because because you can have people there have been oversensitive people for millennium, right? And they weren't yes. it wasn't put in a context of race diversity, wasn't put in any of that context. It was just someone was oversensitive. In certain realms where people can be marginalised just for who they are, obviously that shouldn't happen. Ta-da. But I don't think one should look for offence. Look for the slight at the end of the tunnel. You know, don't do that. I'm done with it. And I'm also done with, Mm -hmm. with, and I'll have to help us wind up because I've got to go and do some disruptive stuff, but I'm also done with, News reporting that's constantly pulling the negative thread out of it just to just for the headline. I'm done with that kind of reporting and analysis of news and current affairs that's constantly looking for the fault in the floor to prove leadership wrong. I I actually think that people who put their hands up to lead, we vote them in to let politics, for instance, we vote them in to lead. So look at look at it context. Stop playing gotcha and trying to rip everybody down who's actually put themselves out there to do something. I don't agree with that form of journalism. I'm done with it. So there you go. Man, there's so much, there's, that is so good. And I'm done there's with so it. much more I'd love to go into do that, but I'm agree? not going to because we but need, you, yes, I do agree, but we need to wrap it up. Well, I don't necessarily we can agree have with a the whole. Bit. No, because I've got some like Strong regular views. questions I okay, want to ask, ask you before do I. Do I think we matter when I, I die? I don't think I matter. If I leave a little bit of something. Do you care about dying? I, I used to care about it a lot. And it used to frighten the shit out of me. Uh, I would not like to not be with my children and and stew. So on the personal aspect, but I have experienced a close death now with the death of my brother in an accident a while ago, and I can't make his death about me because he'd hate it. However, it did teach me that people die, mm-hmm. and it's a disaster and it's a tragedy. But it makes me listen to the news more closely and I hear that people die and are killed mm-hmm. unjustly and unfairly all, all the, time. the time. Randomly. Randomly. And it's a disaster yeah. and it's upsetting and it you never get over it. You just learn to live around it. But death is a part of life. And yeah. Pam Swain, who we both know. The great Pam Swain. Rest in rest peace. Rest in peace. Taught me that with her death uh, last year, I think it was now, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. When yeah. she contacted us all by text and by phone, and said, I'm on my way. And she allowed us to say goodbye and communicate our gratitude. It was difficult, but she allowed it. And she included us in her in her death in that respect. It wasn't like, oh, hush, hush, when's that? When's that? She said, I'm on the bus, I've got a ticket, and I'm not here for long. And we all had this wondrous opportunity to pay tribute to a woman who had helped us not just professionally, but personally. And it meant the world to me. Like it changed my view of it, that if you can have a good, if you're lucky enough to, to have a, a, a good death whereby you're not, where you, where you come to terms with it, then that is a blessing. My brother was not afforded that. Um, but, you know, Pam's death was definitely a lesson in grace and comfort. Because I felt better about her going, having been involved in the process, slightly. 
you know, it was just by text. It was just by saying goodbye and, and, and having Tracy, her best friend, be in contact. It's a bit of a rage. Her, but I found it quite profound. No. Well, her um, funeral, um, which I wasn't able to attend in person, unfortunately, because it had been a COVID scare where I was uh, two days before. And um, we were doing the tally. But luckily, during COVID, one of the most the, – the one, one of the actual positive things that happened is that now – Every you know sort of funeral home has this incredible it's way that you stream. can actually live stream these things, and you know you talk about that idea of like a life well lived and relationships well formed versus having your name on the outside of the marquee. There's no better example of like the yeah you, you know, the people whose lives she touched in so many ways, both professionally that she was champions of, but also personally that she was champions of is just. Yeah, an incredible legacy to have. Okay, here's a question. Um, if you Would you prefer – you have to do one or the other. You have to have one or the other. Would you prefer to know uh, when you die or how you die? Mm. I don't like that question very much. I know, it's a tough question, isn't it? Yeah, but you have to – for the hypothetical, you have to choose one or the Probably other. Probably when. When or how. And do you think that when would affect how you live your life? Like if, if you knew it was 50 years versus knowing it was five years, do you think you would live your life in a particularly different way? I would hope not, but it probably would. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Okay. I'd love to dig into that, but we don't have time. I've got uh, well, worst piece of advice can... or best piece oh. of advice you've ever had. What's the worst or best? It can be some something that someone thought was really good advice that was actually terrible advice or it can be actually just good advice, one of... or the other. Good yeah. piece of advice, mm. Ted, oh, well, I'm just grasping, yeah. but, you know, this too will pass, you know, like. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. A worst piece of advice why don't you interview Chopper? <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we're going to finish up. I've only got one more question, more but let's plug the right? let's plug the new pro- project one more time. So, where when can people find your new breakfast show? Where can people find your new breakfast show? How does it all work? Tell people what they need. Well, you to need know. a digital radio, and whether it be yeah. in the car or whether it be on the bench, you know they don't have numbers; it's names. So the name is Disrupt. And it mm. might be on your radio now as Dream. That's the pirate name, Dream okay. Radio. It's just playing music at the moment with occasional disruptors coming. But we will be on air on the 26th of June. And I'll be doing okay. breakfast with a very special guest. All right. Well, I, let's, we can put this out around that time. That way people can, like, you know, absolutely know that they can go straight to their uh, radio and check it out. Um, so. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, final question. Yes. I have a time machine. Mm. Um, I can take you on a trip mm. either to the future or to the past. Um, you can change things, visit yourself. I, there's no real rules in this time travel universe that I've established for the premise of this question. Um, it, it's just interesting to me firstly to know if you go forward or backwards and then where you go. I would love to go forward and I'd like to see my kids as parents because, you mm. know, I had my kids late, 40 yeah. and 44. I was very lucky that I got them. So I am very cognizant that I won't be around for them at the same age that I am now and my parents are still here at 90. So I would love to be able to pop in and keep an eye on my kids. Not keep yeah. an eye, but just see what they're up to. Just see what they're yeah, up to. Yeah, I love them. <laughs> I love my children. Stu and I love you do. them. I do. 
Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful note to finish this on. This has been a lovely chat. But don't get cocky, be. you two. Just don't get cocky. <laughs> if they've listened this far into the podcast yeah. in the future. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining this today. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Will. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. Listener.